Welcome to the True Falls Film Festival. Especially when I was making this film, I was so irritated by the idea of some notion of like there being no documentary bias, that somehow if documentary showed bias, then they're somehow less proficient at revealing truth. And I think that that is a very privileged point of view to take, that somehow, some way, the filmmaker is supposed to be above judging, is not supposed to have an opinion about what they look at. Hi. Welcome to the True False Podcast, presented by KBIA. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. In today's episode, we'll be listening to a conversation with filmmaker Elegance Bratton, whose film Pure Kids showed at True False 2020. Making the film, Bratton's first feature, was not a short process. Nonfiction filmmakers often end up with way more material than they could ever use, something Bratton ran into making Pure Kids. The film portrays life in New York for gay and transgender youth who don't have a place to call home. Producing the film involved capturing all kinds of people's stories over the course of many years in order to portray Bratton's own experience with homelessness. Here's Bratton in conversation with True False programmer Amir George. Within a few months, I'd met my main characters. After five years of filming a successful Kickstarter, committing myself to being a filmmaker, getting into Tisch University, I found myself with 400 hours of footage that I did not know what to cut into. And one of the reasons I went to Tisch was to learn how to cut the movie so I could actually finish and satisfy my kind and generous backers on Kickstarter. And three years after that, we made the film that you guys so graciously allowed in. So it was a process of eight years. Could you talk a little bit about, like, you were working on it while you were, like, a peer kid yourself? I began shooting peer kids in the summer of 2011 after my first semester at Columbia University and I was a freshman there in the School of General Studies at 31 years old. So I'd spent 10 years homeless, and then I joined the Marine Corps for five years where I became a filmmaker, and then I went to Columbia. So I'd spent like 15 years without an address of my own, really. Like in the Marines, I had an address, sure. But, you know, it's a barracks room that many other people will eventually live in. And I lost connection to my family home because of my sexuality and they kicking me out for being gay. So when I got to the end of my first semester at Columbia, I was kind of shocked what a big deal it was for students to go home after their first semester at college and how like, you know, parents and pets and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, people, it was like a parade in and of itself when the kids unpacked the dorms and ended up going back home. And I was like, well, what is home for me? Where is home? And simultaneously, I was taking summer classes and I was in a sociology course where we were discussing basically the math behind like social theory. And one of the things we read was this book by Granovetter called The Power of Social Networks, a book written in the 1960s. So our professor was like, can you find a living social network that kind of points out Granovetter's thesis and Around the time I'm watching these kids go home and I got this assignment, I'm back and forth to the pier. Because when I was kicked out, it was the first place I went. I've got this assignment at school and I'm on the pier and I kind of look around and I realize that home is where one is most deeply understood. 
home is the place where you don't have to say anything and everybody kind of gets you. And that's what makes a family a home. And in that moment, I realized that the pier was home for me. And I became struck by the notion of young people who develop themselves in a public home. This is your feature debut. Did you always intend for this to be your feature or did it just come about because you have been working on it so long and you felt you need to put it out in that, in that way? I'd always wanted it to be a feature film. I can't say that I always understood what it would take to make a feature documentary. I think filmmaking is one of those things where, like for me, I just wanted to, every time I make a movie, my main goal is to get an opportunity to make another one pretty soon after. My intention was to make a feature length film that had the potential to fill a gap in communication that I kind of hold responsible to some degree for my estrangement from my family. I appreciate how the film really celebrates like this chosen family along the pier. And I feel like it's so many characters that you introduce us to and we learn about throughout the film, but you only focus on about three main ones. Uh, could you talk about how that relationship developed and how you chose to focus on like these specific characters? Sure. So when I first went out, as you can see in the film, I talked to everybody. I think a big part of healing from trauma, particularly for people of color, for Black folks, has to include saying it out loud with each other. And when I started making the movie, I was applying the things I'd learned in the Marine Corps about filmmaking to this film. I, I've made several documentaries in the Marines. And as you can imagine, everything is militarized. So you have the subject sit a certain way and you light them at a certain angle and you ask them five questions and then you're done, right? And you do that, you get a little tiny bit of B-roll about those questions, you cut it together, and then every movie that you make in the military kind of sort of has the same kind of formula to it, although you know each artist has their own fingerprint. That worked for maybe the first 50 or 60 interviews. And then when I met Crystal, we just hit it off immediately. I found her, one, I was in school at that time, undergrad, so I'm reading all this like philosophy and particularly Hegel and existentialism and uh, Foucault. And I just found it interesting that Crystal was saying the things that people like Foucault and Hegel would say, but she said them in her own language and about her own people. And I thought that that was really, really useful. She had a philosopher's point of view on her life, which I think speaks to a certain type of objectivity that is special about being in the lifestyle of being homeless on the pier. So I filmed her for about a month in this military style, you know, question, sit at this angle, say it like this. And then one day she says to me, Elegance, listen, if you want to make a movie about my life, you have to be my friend. I don't want to feel like I'm something under glass that you're studying. And I don't want to have the idea that you're done with me when you're done. I want to know that you're on my side, the camera's on my side. And I was like, you know what? Thank you, Crystal. Because it really, really helped me to, I think, become a filmmaker. It was the note that changed my compulsion to record things into an artistic practice that could guide me in the very difficult process of excavating my own personal trauma through the stories that I share with others. So that was Crystal. And then with Deshaun, Deshaun was unavoidable. Anyone I talked to mentioned Deshaun. They called him the mayor of Christopher Street at that time. Number one, I saw a lot of myself in Deshaun. He's a really, really smart, young Black gay man who had never gotten the opportunities to be able to flex that intellect. And in many ways, 
I saw where he was living at that age very much as reminiscent of where I was at that age. And I've really, really wanted the film to be a way for him to lift himself up out of that situation and to be a part of the film's life. But more importantly, I think what Deshaun brings to it is a voice of reason and a certain amount of like being a super duper reliable witness. This is a person who wields power in this space, which is also fascinating. The fact that people have so much deference and what his power gets him. So Deshaun is the voice of the film. He's the person that we go back to when we need clarification. He's also the person that shows us what's at stake in this lifestyle. And then for Casper, I had such a short amount of time with Casper, unfortunately. But um, I found that his point of view as a trans attracted bisexual Black man of Caribbean descent to be super important and relevant to the experience of the pier. The pier is a hub for not only the five boroughs of New York City, but a bunch of North Jersey and really, truly the whole country. You know, once young people come out and they start to realize the history of gay rights, they're invariably going to hear about Christopher Street in the West Village. I think it's important to talk about the forms of community and relationships that are formed amongst queer people in the West Village. And I think that relationship between Black men and trans women is integral to the social experience of Christopher Street. And I just appreciated the way that Casper radiates so much innocence and so much light and hope and optimism. And he's open about his attraction to trans women. I think it's important for young black men who have this attraction and anyone who has this attraction really to see themselves celebrated on screen. And what I loved about Casper that there was no sense of like defeat in his desire, only hope and joy. And, and, and those three in conversation with one another spoke to elements of myself that helped me to overcome being homeless in that space when I was a kid at their age. Coming up, Elegance Bratton talks about adjusting his approach to filmmaking to better suit the people he filmed and how many of them ended up being collaborators. Every breath you take in that space is, is under you know surveillance. And then here I am with my camera and my lights and my boom mics and you know shining a light here, police, that's what they're doing, right? So I had to strip it down in order to gain trust so that they would allow me to be present in I felt was the truth of their experience. That's next, after this. Hi, welcome back to the True False Podcast presented by KBIA. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. Before the break, we were listening to programmer Amir George's conversation with filmmaker Elegance Bratton about his film Peer Kids. When making the film, Bratton wanted the camera to live the experiences of a peer kid and not just as an observer. I'm thinking about like just all the like style choices of camera and just the styles of cutting. And if you could talk a little bit about that process of sure. just from a style perspective. Sure. Um, I'll, kind of, I'll start at the end and go back. Um, in terms of the cutting, I have Bernhard, Fast and Fist, Tutso, Sumrock, and Princess Hairston to thank for the style of cutting. For us, the film is, in essence, a mixtape and a portrait piece. That's kind of how I see it. I used to joke around with the people on the pier, like, I'm like a rapper with a camera. It's as if Nas was gay, Black, and also a budding filmmaker. I wanted the camera to be a peer kid. I wanted the audience to live within the skin of oppression in the most direct and immediate way. 
right, visceral way. So that when poor kids are swept off the street, like a lot of times when I watch documentaries about, you know, poor people of color, the documentary itself is just another privileged observer of their conditions, right? We'll see them, you know, get locked up at the protest or we see them get beaten by police. But a lot of these films don't ask us to be beaten, to be swept up, right? To feel what that feels like. And particularly the movies of Gio Pontecorvo, uh, The Battle of Algiers is a big influence on this film. There's that great scene where the French Foreign Legion has zeroed in on Ali's location inside of this wall. I mean, the movie opens with him inside the wall. And outside of the wall is, you know, French colonial power. And inside the wall is this one Arab man who has a dream of being free and breaking through these colonial ties. And like this, the visual metaphor of him being in that wall, it, it meant a lot to me and guided me, you know. And then I also love the movie Paris is Burning. Um, it's a film that I, I know line for line. You know, that movie helped me to not only in a sense of it being like a seminal work about the culture, but also in a sense of like, what is the difference between a black queer person making a story about black queer people? And how can I learn from Paris is Burning on how to establish my voice in all of this and to let the audience know that it is indeed a film that is squarely on the side of these kids on the pier. I make no pretenses of documentary objectivity. Instead, I choose to implicate the viewer in what I feel to be the value judgments of the culture and to say, well, if you don't agree with them, then you are wrong. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not trying to like be forgiving in that way. It's more so about you're a kid, you've been kicked out, you had no notice, and you have to find family right away to survive. And when life and death are on the line, I think it really simplifies politics a bit and is able to kind of show what we all have in common. And then the other thing is I'm filming people at time of the night where pretty much everything they're doing is illegal in the most fundamental sense too. Like New York has a law where it's no longer legal for more than two people to congregate on any street corner in New York City at any time of day after 9-11. So for peer kids, congregating on street corners is kind of like a functional necessity to build community and find opportunities to survive the night. And I'm super, super grateful that the community opened its arms to me. And I guess that's the last bit of the aesthetics. You know, I don't really use the word subjects, at least in this documentary. I'm curious to explore it as a concept in subsequent films. But in this film, I view what would be called a subject as a participant. These are collaborators, each one of the individuals on screen, from Crystal, Deshaun, Casper, and every individual whose names we will not remember at the end of the story right away. They take, grab me by lens and take me where I was supposed to be. And they're like, you stand here. Now you say this and you say that. Not to say that things were staged, but it is to say that the community is as much a part of directing this project as the director is. I really love how also you get to see what they're being faced with by other parts of society, whether it's police, whether it's people harassing them, I feel like that's something you don't normally get exposed to. I thought that was a great like highlight of the film, especially uh, towards the end when you have the pride parade and the character who can't really like communicate with the officer right. and trying to get out the way. And I feel like that really broadens the perspective of like who's in this community and the situations that they deal with. Well, I mean, it's a it's a curious state of affairs that all people of color find themselves in when we deal with law enforcement because at a very fundamental level every law in america you really can find a racist 
genesis for the existence of that law so that in its very DNA, the idea of being a non-white heterosexual person is written with illegality associated with these identities. So it was important to me to capture that and to make that palpable. And as a Black person who's been homeless, who's relied on public space in order to craft the best version of myself, I can't tell you how constricting it is to be surveilled by police everywhere you go all the time. More so than that, how threatening that is, right? That at any given point in time, these men in uniform and women in uniform who are eyeing you can decide to interact with you and whatever they say is the truth because you're a poor black person outside at night. So I wanted to make that palpable. I wanted to make it so that whoever watches this movie, especially the white folks, they can't say that they don't understand what our problems are anymore in terms of the police and why we are suspicious of these blue uniforms and these badges. They have presented themselves as a threat to us in gentrifying cities all over America. And now the audience who watches this film will have firsthand experience of what that's like. And I hope it enrages them. I hope that it makes them less amenable to notions of objectivity when it comes to the ways that laws are enforced on people of color, especially poor folks. Elegance Braddon is a filmmaker based in New York. His feature-length film, Pure Kids, debuted at True False 2020. He spoke with True False programmer Amir George. You can find Bratton on Twitter, at Langston Cruz. That's it for this week's episode of the True False Podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Maggie Doney. Our music is by Tim Pilcher using sounds of the True False Film Fest. You can find more episodes of the True False Podcast on kbia.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. Thanks for listening. Thank you.